Amen. You can grab a seat and let's just thank the worship team for leading us this morning. I don't know about you guys, but um, I'm excited for Easter, uh, two weeks until that uh, day, really that weekend of celebrating at our church and uh, just counting down the days. And uh, if you've never been in a part of our church, around our church, um, uh, Good Friday, Easter, it is just um, uh, such a concerted effort to reflect on a Christ's death and then to celebrate the resurrection. And uh, But remember, remember church, that for those of us who are in Christ, uh, we live every day knowing that the resurrection declared our victory over sin and death. Amen? And uh, yes, uh, life is... Um, can be a difficult and dark and heavy, and, and at times we feel like, as we've walked through the series, we've been thinking and processing through how we navigate dark times, but our victory has been declared. Don't forget that, and uh, don't forget that even as we process through um, this uh, next to last week um, in Habakkuk, and we got two more messages uh, left, and as we continue to consider faith in dark times. And so get your Bibles open to Habakkuk chapter three and let me just pray for this time in God's word together. Uh, God, thank you for each and every person here joining us online. Um, uh, God, I'm just so thankful for the things that you're doing in and through our church and it is a work that, that no man can understand. Now we are just trying to, uh, by your grace, in your mercy, uh, God, give us continued wisdom to steward, to lead, a people to the throne of God to help them see and understand you and your works more accurately, your word more deeply, to receive it, to love it. Let even now as we consider Habakkuk 3, this passage in front of us, would your spirit come and bring it to bear on our hearts. And in that, I pray that we would be stirred up and encouraged to live more faithfully in the way that you've called us to for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, I don't know if, if you've ever been in this scenario, but I'm pretty sure you have. Um, have you ever been in, in a, in, at night and it's dark and people are sleeping in your home and you're trying to navigate from one area to the other in your home or in a room and you can't turn the light on because you don't want to wake anybody up and you're trying to be as quiet as possible? And if you've been in that scenario, um, you, you know that what's really important is is in your mind you have an awareness of where everything is at, right? Because it's familiar. And so in that moment, you're trying to be quiet, you're trying not to wake anybody up, and you got this picture of, of, of how to get across the room, and then you, you go for it. And then you find out that someone uh, didn't push a chair up against the table, or a child left a Lego out on the floor. <laughs> Still have some PTSD from some of those moments. And, and, and now, what was an attempt to get from one end to the other, and you knew you could navigate it, you had it laid out perfect, something that you didn't expect came into your environment, and now you trip over that, and you fall, and you scream out, and you wake everybody up. And what, what you recognize in that is, is that it's hard to navigate when the environment changes or it's unfamiliar. It's really simple. But it's difficult and more complex because in dark times, in difficult seasons, the environment can shift quickly. Circumstances and people aren't as consistent maybe as you thought. Sometimes even your own heart can't be trusted. 
And what you need to do in that is you need to orient yourself in an environment that never shifts or changes. You need something established. You need something so desperately to be secure. When you're walking through dark times, you've got to get your life into an environment that you can trust. Today in Habakkuk 3, Habakkuk declares that the most consistent environment is when you orient your life in the history of God's faithfulness. It will never shift. There may be surprises from our perspective, but there's never surprises from his. God will be faithful. The knowledge of God's faithfulness is the light to help you navigate through dark times if you would see it in scripture and trust it even when you're not aware of the reason why. Habakkuk 3, 1 through 15 is our text. We're going to work through it as we work through the message. But let's start here, the big move. During dark times, reorient, reorient your life in the history of God's faithfulness. So let's break this down. First point for us to get this, to understand this, to receive this in our lives is this. Rehearse the testimony of his faithfulness. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. That's my best attempt, I'll be honest. There's just certain words that you're just names you're just really not sure how to pronounce. You just give it a shot, okay? Um, I don't know any parent that's ever named their kid Shigianoth. Nickname would probably be Shiggy, and if that was the case, you would probably all laugh. And so this is probably one of those names that no one seems to want to name their child. Then verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you in your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So, so first, what I want you to see here is in these first two verses, as we understand this idea of rehearsing the testimony of his faithfulness, you, you've got to see that in verse 1, it, it's framing up everything that's going to conclude Habakkuk. It's framing it up very similar to what you see in the Psalms. And most people, smarter than I, who have studied this passage, say that this really becomes almost like a psalm at the end of Habakkuk. It's a psalm for the future. It was intended to be something that would be recited, rehearsed, and even sung in public worship. And it was something that Habakkuk was preparing prophetically ahead of time for the exile. Why do I say that? Well, look at look in verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. See, the first place is this idea that he's looking at who God is, because God's faithful in his character, because it's his character, and it doesn't change. It doesn't shift. It never needs maturity like our character needs. It's constant and consistent. It's like, look at his character and his work. Look at God and his work. And he's saying into that, he, he's saying, do I fear? Now, fear here is not, a, is not a cowering sort of fear. It's an awe of who God is. And then he says, in the midst of the years, revive it. Three things follow that word fear that define his awe of God and his desperateness for God. But notice what comes in front of it is in the midst of the years. He's looking ahead to the dark time of the exile that was coming as a punishment to the people. 
for their disobedience and for their idolatry. And, and what he's saying is he's saying revive it. Like, God, make, it, make them live in that. Make them continue to have faith in it. It's a reference back to Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. He's like, make them live. That's the idea of revive. Reaffirm your promises to your people when they're in the midst of the years. Trusting God's faithfulness to his promises. Then he says, in the midst of the years, make it known. He's like, make it known. Like, help the people to remember. When they're feeling the weight and the burden of the dark time, make them aware of who you are and your works. How often do we need that? Like, so much of what I I feel like happens in and around the gathering of God's people in different forms, the teaching of God's word, praying, communion, so many things is so that we would remember God and his work. And we'd rehearse the testimony. Keep it in our minds, God, is what's being, is the cry of Habakkuk here. And then he finishes with, in wrath, remember mercy. Now the word wrath here isn't, the word translated wrath in the Hebrew is not this idea of like God's anger towards something or human's anger towards something. The idea of wrath here and the way it probably could be better translated is um, in the midst of my trembling. When you see wrath, normally you're like, ugh. This reference to wrath is actually tender. It's saying that in the midst of the dark time and as you're walking through the years of the exile, in wrath, in the midst of your trembling, in the midst of my trembling, God, remember mercy. I, I'm asking that you would show compassion to me in this. When they are facing the consequences in the exile, they're asking God to remember his promises to his people. There's something in the midst of struggle where we, re, when we reorient ourselves in the midst of God's faithfulness and we rehearse the testimony, what we're doing is we're taking hold of, by faith, something that can mercifully help us through the dark time. Passing on this testimony that we see here, this psalm of sorts from Habakkuk, was so important in the Old Testament. They, they were called, even in the New Testament, to rehearse these things. The testimony of God's character and his works were handed down from generation to generation. They, they, they were called to meditate on the word, to rehearse the truth of God and identify his works. As I was thinking about this idea of rehearsing and the purposefulness in, uh, in and amidst God's community, I, I, I thought about this. I, I wrote down, be careful what you rehearse. Be careful what you rehearse. It's really easy for us to get into a pattern of rehearsing loss, rehearsing hurt, rehearsing pain, In dark times, it's easy to allow the reality of what you're experiencing to become the primary truth that you are rehearsing. Let me just write that, let me say that again. In dark times, it's easy to allow the reality of what you're experiencing to become the primary truth over your life that you're rehearsing. This is so bad. It's so hard. It's so 
painful. And we let this wash over our minds again and again, over and over. Now listen, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, that, that, that somehow, in, uh, by faith in Christ, that, that when I walk through something that's hurtful or, or painful or a loss, that I'm supposed to just forget about it, put it behind me, and imagine it's not there, and put on some fake veneer smile that is not the truth of what the Bible teaches us in regards to how God's people walk. And it would be inconsistent with what I've been taught in this series. I know, I know, that there is a degree of suffering that some of you have endured or are enduring that is beyond what I can understand. The, the, the memory of what's happened in your life is constant and enduring. The, the, the pain of that is deep and excruciating. I cannot understand in some things I can because my story is similar. But I'm not saying that you should forget it. I, but but here's, here's the thing. I am confident. I am confident based on the testimony of Scripture, based on what I've seen in other people's lives and in my lives, not just in this season and time in which I've led in the church, but through the history of the work of God through the church, I have seen again and again that I am confident that God's faithfulness is deep enough and strong enough to meet you in whatever degree of suffering that you have experienced, are experiencing, or will experience. I'm not saying that you should forget or deny the struggle or the dark time, but what you should do is learn to stop rehearsing it. Now, now hear this, because we, we make this mistake a lot of times in the church, historically. We're like, we're like just, just stop doing that. And the person's like, sometimes in regards to sin, they're like, this is all I know. This is the path that's been worn in my life again and again. And for some of you, the, the emotion and the feeling around the pain and the loss or the suffering is the most powerful, most enduring reality over your life. So we can't, just, we can't just say, stop rehearsing it. We have to learn to stop rehearsing it. And one of the ways in the gospel that we stop things is by replacing something that is strong with something that is stronger. And what we do here is we have to rehearse something over our lives that's more powerful, more enduring, more sustaining, more secure than the thing that we're feeling or thinking or have been rehearsing. You've got to rehearse God's faithfulness over your entire life. Reorient your circumstances under the truth of God's faithfulness. Let God's faithfulness be the corrective lens through which you see your circumstances. That sometimes I don't understand the why, but I trust God's faithfulness. Maybe I don't even see or understand how a resolution could come in this life, but I know that it will in the next. We rehearse truth about God's faithfulness. Faithfulness to love us, faithfulness to show mercy, faithfulness to offer grace, constant faithfulness to his promises. This is why Paul said in Philippians 4.8, talking about anxiety, which anxiety is worrying about something that is difficult. 
Look what he says. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. God's faithfulness seen through God's word has the potential to transform my present experience regardless of my past experience. Rehearse God's faithfulness. Yes, yes. Uh, Just like we said earlier in the series, you have the freedom to bring your complaints to God. But it didn't stop there, church. That was a few messages ago. A few messages ago in the prophecy of Habakkuk and now we're in a place where what he's saying is he's saying rehearse God's faithfulness over that. Don't end there. Yes, that can be a part of your expression, but let your mind and soul and spirit be immersed in the testimony of God's faithfulness. And some of you are staying in a place of hard where you're not rehearsing the testimony of God's faithfulness over your life because you think sufficient, you think it's sufficient enough just to like come to church and be stirred up for a few moments and the purpose of all of this is to stir you up so that Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday that you would continue to get into God's word and to rehearse over your life God's faithfulness because there's times in your life when it doesn't seem as though he's faithful and what I'm grabbing hold of and rehearsing over my life is what I know to be true historically that's why the main point was not rehearse or reorient your life in the history of God's faithfulness specifically to you, but sometimes it's just gotta be broader than that. And that's why the Bible teaches us don't forsake gathering together because we're called in our gathering together to stir one another up, what? To faith and good works. To remind ourselves of God's faithfulness together. Rehearse the testimony of his faithfulness. It's part of what happens when we gather together but certainly our hearts and our lives require more than that level of consistency. During dark times, reorient your life in the history of God's faithfulness. Number two, recount the purposes in his judgment. Follow along with me starting in verse three through 12. In wrath, remember mercy at the end of, cha- at the end of verse two, then God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth, he looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of a cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from, the, from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Recount the purposes in his judgment. This section took a a bit longer in to get my head wrapped around and to see what God was teaching. Um, because 
God is outlining here, and, and Habakkuk is, is sort of spelling out a, a, a bit of a collage of, of God's past judgment. If you know some of the moves of judgment in the Old Testament, you can see some of the evidence of this. You can see uh, God's judgment in Exodus in his reference to the plague or pestilence or road on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, as you think about all that happened in passing through the Red Sea. Then references to the flood at the very beginning of the Bible. Uh, references like split the earth with rivers or the raging waters swept on are pictures of God's judgment. And so why? Why is he, why is he outlining in, in, in sort of this section about God's judgment? Because the people are about to face God's judgment in exile. And he wants them to see he's recounting God's purposes in his judgment. Like, can we just agree, like, like judgment is, is pretty difficult to receive in the moment, right? Come on. You know what I'm talking about. Judgment at times can feel unjust or unfair, especially from other people. When facing judgment, it's really helpful when you see the purpose. See, when you see the purpose in the judgment, suddenly you're not as defensive or as bitter about the judgment that you faced when you recognize that it has a purpose. When you're immersed in dark times, here's what I know and I've seen again and again and again alongside other people and personally in my life. When you're immersed in dark times, God is always, always at work to bring judgment and there is purpose in his judgment. And there's purpose in his judgment for your good. He highlights this because his people would need this assurance when they're in exile to recount the purposes in his judgment. And, and, and isn't this the case in, in our own lives? Like, like, when you see the purpose in the judgment, everything changes. And so this is not the primary intention of this passage, but anyone who is in a marriage relationship, this next little section could be very helpful to you. Maybe even, like, really needed right now. If you think a person's judgment is wrong or unfair and then you later realize that it was right and appropriate and helpful, everything changes, doesn't it? Everything changes. Judgment suddenly, in that moment, it shifts from negative to positive. When you, when you, when you recognize that, that there's validity and actual benefit in the judgment. Now, in the midst of, of, of judgment from other people, that sometimes is a little harder to navigate, right? Because it's, it's not super clean. Like, you sometimes have to discern through the judgment. But from God, it's always perfect and loving and good for us. It's just our responsibility and our brokenness to get through the mess of our own heart to be able to discern and receive it, right? And if you can receive the judgment and learn from it, church, there is, there is a harvest of righteousness for some of you who numerous people have, and God, have been trying to communicate something into your life and instead of a willing reception of it, there is a sort of a bitterness or a defensiveness and the judgment will continue to come because God loves you and he wants to transform you. 
This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews was teaching. Look at this, Hebrews 12, 10 through 11. For they disciplined us, referring to earthly parents, for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, referring to God, disciplines us. Discipline is judgment. <laughs> That's what it is. And it's, and it's imperfect with, with humans, but it is perfect with God. And look what it says as it follows. He says he disciplines us, what? For our, say it church, good. That we may share his holiness. That is just so awesome. There is so much, the grace and mercy of God is dripping from that phrase, share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, later, look back in Habakkuk, in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So if discipline is judgment, God is revealing something in his judgment, in his discipline, to bring transformation. There's purpose in the judgment. And Habakkuk knew that the people in the midst of exile feeling the judgment and going, are you serious? Some of them going, I wasn't even the one who, who betrayed and turned away from God, but I'm feeling this and experiencing this judgment and the pain from it. And it all can be changed. Endurance can be found if we can see the purposes in the judgment. When you are trained by it, church, what the writer of Hebrews is teaching us and Habakkuk is laying out for the people is that when you're trained by it, when you see how God works in this and you recount the purposes in his judgment, it helps you receive the pain of the judgment and endure through it. And this never plays out clean. You're, you're going to, in your life, you're going to face, at times, unfair critique and judgment from others. Remember, it's always perfect from God. It's just our heart that's a mess. But when people are exchanging judgment, it, it's, it's never clean. It's, it's never communicated perfect. It always has a little bit of my selfishness in it or my limited perspective in it that comes up against your perspective. And we're trying to navigate something. But in enduring relationships, there becomes an increasing awareness of some things that, that, might, that God might want to change in someone's life. And sometimes we, through the Spirit of God, can be the spokesperson of that. And if you submit to God and if you're trained to look for it, for what God is doing, I promise you I know this from experience. That there are times when what you receive just feels at first like, ugh. But when you have first been trained by God in working and interacting with him to receive the judgment from him, now even from fallen people, you're able to take that judgment and go, no, 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 God's got something in this for me. Uh, God's got something in this for me and I'm going to filter through it and I'm going to walk through with my life rooted in the truth of God's faithfulness and I'm going to discern what it is because I believe that there's something in that judgment that God could use to, for my transformation and if everybody around me and including my discernment and I bring it to scripture and everybody's like that was just outright unfair ungodly judgment then only at that point will I deny it. But until that point, I will be faithful to this because I'm recounting the purposes of God in his judgment to help me, to minister to me.
to places that he's trying, longing to transform me. In dark times, look for the ways God is wanting to transform your life. And what that'll do is it'll help you reorient your life in, in the history of God's faithfulness during dark times. And, and in that, even in the midst of the pain that's coming, God will do a work in you. And this is why I believe that sometimes we hear the testimony of people that look back on something in the past and they go, that was terrible. I don't ever want to go through that again. But I've been shaped in such a powerful way through that that I'm actually thankful for it. And then they're like, but I don't want it to happen again. You know, it's like you get this feeling like if we say something out loud, it's bound to happen again, which is irrational. And we, we, we need to look at these things and go, God's got purposes in his judgment. And when we receive that in dark times, God can do an amazing work in our hearts. Recount the purposes in his judgment. Reorient your life in the history of God's faithfulness. Then this last one, rejoice in his promised deliverance. Rejoice in his promised deliverance, verses 13 through 15. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. That's not a picture of what happens in the midst of suffering, nothing is. Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Rejoice in his promised deliverance. In verse 13, there's a turn. Because Habakkuk knows with certainty, remember, he's looking ahead to the exile, this direction, ahead to the exile. It hasn't happened yet. And what he's saying is he's saying, my confidence is such that it will turn. God will bring deliverance. The suffering will come to an end in the final act. God's redemptive story will end very well for his people. For the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Those that have positioned themselves against God does not end so well. God went out for the salvation. I just love that phrase in this passage. It's critical for God's people to hear this. It's, it's important for us to rejoice in this, in his promised deliverance. God will come to bring salvation. The promise is all over scripture. It's affirmed again and again and again, God's history of faithfulness. And he promises to bring it to an end in the end and make all things right. You might not see the fullness of salvation while you're struggling and toiling in the pain and the loss of exile, but it is coming. Again and again, the testimonies of God's faithfulness shows you how he went out for salvation. He went out numerous times throughout Old Testament history he went out to preserve and to advance redemptive history. 
He went out to establish and intervene in history to establish and preserve his people. He went out again and again at key times to protect God's people. He went out to enter our world as a baby in the manger. He went out to communicate the message of the gospel to the world. He went out to sacrifice his life on the cross for our sins. He went out of the world then in his ascension so that he might intercede for us. And from heaven the Spirit went out to fill his people. And God's people went out with the Spirit to share the gospel and establish the church. And it continues until Jesus is going to come out of heaven and finish this chapter and begin the chapter that never ends. Amen. Rejoice in what we already know to be true and with what is coming. And even if rejoicing is difficult in the moment, let the assurance of hope bring some semblance of joy in the moment. Rejoice in his promised deliverance. It's the basis for our hope in dark times. It's already seen in the promise of his deliverance, but it's not yet fully realized. And so we sit in this place, in this moment of time, waiting that moment, but also needing to find our purpose in the moments that we have. And what we need to do is we need to find courage. We need to find courage to endure through dark times. And we find that courage by rejoicing in his promised deliverance. Courage is a really interesting thing. If you study courage, because I was thinking about it as I was thinking about this passage, I was like, I think rejoice and the idea of rejoicing is part of our courage and, and, and it's something that, that gives us the ability to look forward to the promised deliverance and go, I'm going to rejoice in my trials and in my suffering. But how? How do we do that? And as I, as I looked at what the Bible teaches on courage, there's a word in front of courage all the time. It's this word, it's take. Take courage, take courage. How do you take courage? How do you take courage? Like, I think some of us think we take courage by like, it's gonna take some courage. And we like, we like try to well up within us some bravado or some strength. That normally ends badly in regards to courage. I've seen grown men cry. The, the, the one that projects the most toughness seems to be the one that falls the hardest. You take courage by rejoicing in his promised deliverance. You take courage if your heart is believing, trusting, resting in, delighting in God's promised deliverance, because then by faith you are taking courage. You were taking hold of it. It's, it's why Christ said, take heart, I have overcome the world. He's like, by faith, you're taking hold of what I have already declared is being taken down, dismantled, conquered, brought to an end, so that I might resurrect not just my own life, but a new heavens and a new earth in which all things will be made new. So I've overcome the world. So don't take hold of the world, take hold of me and take courage. It's why the Bible says, set your mind on the things that are above. Because if you want to keep your eyes on this world, you're not going to take courage. 
Because you only take courage when you take hold of that which is not seen, that which is coming. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, it says in another place. Boldness is courage. We take hold of it by taking hold of hope. It's 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Look at this on the screen. So we do not lose heart. We're courageous, though our outer self is wasting away. Okay? Just acknowledge that's a very, that's a statement that sums up a lot of pain. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is though is being renewed day by day. And when you're taking hold of faith in God's promised deliverance and you're rejoicing in that, only then can you say this next phrase. For this light momentary affliction, the only way that you can say the reality and the heaviness of what we face in this life can be a light and momentary affliction is only possible if your life is oriented in the history of God's faithfulness. You can't say it otherwise. For people who this life is all that they have, it is not a light and momentary affliction. For those of us who have not remembered or not reorienting our life in the history of God's faithfulness, it is not a light and momentary affliction. But for those of us who have taken courage by faith and are rejoicing in God's promised deliverance, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us, there it is, they're looking forward, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're passing by quickly. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Rejoice in God's promised deliverance in dark times. Take hold of the past evidences of God's faithfulness in our life from Scripture all the way back to before the foundation of the world we have a testimony of in Scripture all the way through and then to take hold of God's promised future deliverance is where we are able to rejoice during dark times, reorient your life in the history of God's faithfulness. And so into this message, we wanted to conclude our time together uh, with communion because I believe that as I reflected on this message and what was coming from Habakkuk 3, here's what here, this is I was certain of. Jesus intended communion to be a time for God's people to rehearse, recount, and rejoice. To reorient your lives in the history of God's faithfulness, uh, particularly in light of what Christ accomplished. Like, like church, communion is for this. It's meant to be a remembrance. It's meant to be a remembrance, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay that out in just a moment, but what's gonna happen is I, I want to get a clear picture of that, and then after that, the elements are gonna be passed. And if you're a follower of Christ, please uh, take the elements. There's two cups stacked on top of one another, one with the bread, the other with the juice, the symbol of Christ's body and his blood broken for you, and I want you to, this time in communion, to hold on to the elements, and we'll take them together. But as you hold the elements, I want you to rehearse the testimony of his faithfulness. Ushers, you can come forward and be ready. We'll start handing out once the song begins. First, I want you, church, as you prepare your hearts to take communion, to rehearse the testimony of his faithfulness, that, that God sent Jesus as the Messiah. His faithfulness to fulfill so many of his promises was in that move. And for Jesus to be faithful to die on the cross for your sins. Faithful to offer forgiveness for the areas where you need it. Rehearse that 
over your life. It won't move. It is finished. Recount the purposes in his judgment. He died on the cross for your sins. He was judged for you. He took on the wrath. He paid the penalty. He took the judgment so that you could find freedom. And so our only right response in that is to confess our sins before him and ask for his forgiveness. To take by faith what he's offered us in the judgment that he took for us. And then rejoice in his promised deliverance. And because he died on that cross, because he sacrificed his life, he has gone now uh, to prepare a place for you. Eternity with God is, is promised for the followers of Christ. And so whatever you're facing right now, take courage by taking hold of Christ. Thank Jesus for his promises to you. He will be faithful to them all. During dark times, reorient your life in the history of God's faithfulness. And so as we prepare our hearts, as the band sings over us, as we take communion, hold on to it, as we look into that cup that represents his blood and the cracker that represents his body broken for you, rehearse, recount, and rejoice. Do it now as the elements are passed.